War II and the Russian Invasion of Ukraine with historian Serhii Plohi. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Russia has tried to assert a monopoly for itself in the victory of Nazism in World War II. But what role did Ukrainians and other nations of the former USSR play in this victory? What is the role of 1945 in Russia's current ideology and how has it influenced the Russian invasion of Ukraine? My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode, I speak to a famous Ukrainian historian, Serhii Plohi, director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University. This episode is made by Ukraine World in partnership with EU versus Disinfo, an EU project aimed at increasing public awareness and understanding of the Kremlin's disinformation operations. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Serhii Plohi, welcome to this podcast. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, a pleasure to be on this podcast. So let us try to reflect upon uh, the way how this mythology, ideology uh, of Russia around the victory of a Nazism in World War II is constructed. Russia has tried to monopolize its role in the victory, but uh, uh, in your opinion, what is what is the role of Ukrainians? What is the role of other nations of the former Soviet Union in this victory of a Nazism? Uh, the uh, monopolization of the not just victory in the World War II, but also suffering in the World War II by Russia is something that uh, for a long period of time went unchallenged. And um, if you look even at the um, uh, sentiment that is uh, probably still dominant in Germany, or at least was dominant until recently, there is a sense of guilt toward Russia. Uh, for uh, what happened uh, during the Second World War, to the to the role, of course, that uh, Germany, Nazi Germany in particular, played in the war, and atrocities committed against the <clears throat> civilian population. But if you look at the at the statistics, you'll find out that proportionally to the population, uh, the uh, three um, countries that suffered the most in Europe from the Nazi aggression are um, Poland, Belarus, and Ukraine. So Russia didn't make it on, on the list of the, of the top three victims. And the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, the uh, Most of atrocities were committed on the occupied territories of Eastern Europe. And that was uh, Poland, Belarus, uh, and uh, Ukraine, only some parts of Western Russia and for a relatively short period of time were under occupation. So this is this is just one thing about um, not just monopolization by Russia of the uh, of the uh, victimhood at the time of the war, but also a broad general acceptance of that of that claim. And uh, another another um, not less important factor is the contribution into the war effort, and eventually eventually into the victory as well. We are talking about millions of Ukrainians who fought on the uh, on the side uh, of the Red Army, actually in the ranks of the Red Army, and there were also a lot 
of Ukrainians in the ranks of the um, allies, uh, the um, British and, and, and Canadian Canadian troops in particular, but also uh, in the U.S. Army. Um, those experiences have been uh, sidelined in that uh, narrative of victory that had that was developed in Russia and has been uh, promoted quite quite successfully worldwide. Uh, Moscow was a place where the leaders of the world used to fly to mark, if not to celebrate, the VE Day in in Europe, which in Russia and in the post-Soviet space has been May the 9th, when the rest of Europe and the rest of the world celebrated May the 8th. So even even with the choosing a different date and insisting on, on that date, you already see that the process of the um, uh, really monopolization of, of, of the victory, of, of the glory of the war, not just of suffering, was there. And it started back uh, in, in 1945. It started really immediately after the end of the war. Can Let me come back to this first point. And can I say provocatively that basically Russia was practically not occupied by the Nazis, and compared to Belarus, Ukraine, Poland, uh, only a tiny percentage of, of the Russian territory was occupied. So Russia, and despite the fact that, of course, many ethnic Russians participated in the Red Army as well, but if we take geographically, Russia stayed away from uh, from the occupation. Um, yes, largely, largely that was the case. Uh, the main battlefields and, and, and killing fields uh, were really were really uh, either either in Western Russia or or really in today's Ukraine and, and Belarus. Uh, so um, and World War Two was was the war where uh, the the more people uh, the, the the civilian population were suffered at least at least on par with the with those who were in the army or maybe in, in some cases suffered even more so civilian casualties that's what uh, that, that, that what really puts countries like like Poland at the top of the list what is the role of uh, this victory uh, of the 1945 uh, in the current Russian ideology can we can we describe it how has it influenced the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Because we have all seen this uh, this mythology of Nazism, that Russia is actually continuing to fight against Nazism in its own views and just finds this Nazism in, in Ukraine, for example. And uh, when we talk to the people in Ukraine who talked to the Russian soldiers, to Russian occupiers, many of them, many of these occupiers were actually repeating the words of the Russian propaganda. And my impression is that by creating this by de- creating this dehumanized uh, image of Ukrainians who are presented in the Russian propaganda as Nazis, uh, Russians were actually creating this ideological ground for the genocide, for the cruelty that they were they were making in Ukraine. So paradoxically, uh, this idea of victory over Nazism created Russia as a neo-fascist or even neo-Nazi state today. Would you agree with that? What we see is that the the um, cult of the of the victory in the uh, so-called Great Patriotic War, not not World War Two, uh, 
started to be formed um, during Brezhnev times. And that got a, a second major impulse after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. The uh, fall of the USSR was perceived as, as humiliation, ultimate humiliation, not only by the Russian elites, but also by significant parts of the population. And there was this, this cult of victory, great victory, not just over Germany, but great victory over the West to a degree, because the uh, May 9 day was interpreted as a day celebrating a particularly strong um, contribution, not just of the Soviet people, but of Russian people to the victory over Nazism. Um, uh, by 1914, when Russia comes uh, to Ukraine, annexes Crimea, starts the so-called hybrid warfare in eastern Ukraine, the cult of the um, victory was already developed in Russia and then was exported. Um, there were the, the symbols symbols of the Russian invasion of 1914 were uh, Saint George's ribbons that by that time already became a symbol of this cult of victory. So not cult of victimhood, but cult of victory in Russia per se. Um, the, the idea was that um, Russia was there and ready to um, make, uh, make uh, a major, major impact on the world once again and through the, through the same way, in the same way by using military force. Uh, so 19, uh, 2014, 2015, that the, the invasion really happened under the, under the banner of this this uh, victory, uh, specifically Russian victory in in World War Two. Uh, there are good uh, good uh, guesses were made and 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 reporting was made that when the war the latest stage of the war started in February of 2022 the idea was that the complete takeover of Ukraine would be would be completed by May 9th so that the parade in Moscow and parade in Moscow would mark and and celebrate not just the victory of 1945 but also the victory allegedly over the heirs of Nazism in Ukraine in 2022 the the rhetoric was was used of the sort that really um, was supposed to make that celebration credible uh, ukraine was presented as a country that was captured um, by by nazists and and fascists led by uh, volodymyr zelensky and in using this this terms in using this rhetoric what was happening? What was happening? A complete delegitimization of the other side, and indeed dehumanization, which um, in that way certainly prepared ground for for the sort of atrocities that uh, we see today. That for the first time were encountered after the Ukrainian troops liberated uh, Kiev region uh, and, and entered into Bucha and Irpin. But uh, with uh, every successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, we, we get information about uh, more butchers or butcher-type situations coming to the fore. And um, this, is, uh, this is not just the result of the 
actions of a particular particular officers or soldiers. This is an outcome of the um, uh, particular type of ideology, which again, by referring to, to fascism, to Nazism, by accusing by accusing the opponent of being allegedly Nazis, leads to to dehumanization and uh, acts of uh, acts of genocide. There is one element of the Russian ideology of uh, main nines, which of course avoids this ideology, and and this is the fact that actually Soviet Union started the war, this, the Second World War, together with Nazism, and was a ally of Nazism at least for two years. Uh, there is also this cult of Stalin, which is which is emerging in Russia in the in the past decades. There is this idea that Stalin was was a good manager and he uh, had everything in order. On the other hand, there is, uh, if we look at these demands of of Russia towards NATO, towards the Western world before this big war in late 2021, it was clear that as if they were trying to come back to this Yalta vision of the world, to the vision of the world post-World War II when Europe will be divided into halves. So there is this idea of coming back to Stalinism. But at the same time, for me personally, the in- invasion of Ukraine is rather has more similarities with Brezhnevism, with late Brezhnevism, with the invasion uh, into Afghanistan, uh, which actually showed rather the weakness of this empire rather than the, its strength. What do you see? Do you see that Putinism is more close to Stalinism or to Brezhnevism or maybe to something else? Mm-hmm. It's 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 difficult to uh, find the, the way to to just pin either Putin or particular policies just to one particular period in the uh, Russian imperial or Soviet history, because at the end of the day, that's all that that imperialism, either under Tsars or under the commissars provides a repertoire for um, for actions uh, also helps to provide tools only the pro- not only the propaganda tools but also offers the models of how how to wage the war um, one thing that um, came to me as a historian who really wrote about the second world war but lacked lacked certain understanding of some parts of it now I understand that and that was the the way how the Red Army waged the war and how it won its battles. Because it looks like what we have in in, in the Russian um, in the Russian army today, this regard for human life not only on the on the other side of the front line, but disregard for the human life of their own soldiers, sending sending soldiers into one attack after another, the so-called meat attacks uh, attacks as they became known today the sort of atrocities that are committed with regard to the uh, population on the allegedly occupied territories that uh, reminds me very much about uh, um, georgi zhukov's way of waging the war that reminds me about the memoirs of, of german women who were raped by by the red army uh, so um, that's that's uh, where where uh, for me parallels certainly with the with the past in this case particular case uh, Soviet past uh, come to the fore. Uh, but you're absolutely right that there are parallels also with the with the Brezhnev era. So you 
called the the uh, war a special military operation you you try to um, uh, keep it uh, keep it uh, away from the from the from the headlines uh, and uh, eventually what the war shows is the uh, complete uh, um, corruption and and uh, not only of your ideology but also inability of your of your army to perform the tasks that uh, the, the the leaders in, in one case the leaders of the Soviet Union in another case the leaders of Russia uh, put in front of it and uh, last but not least there are also very very strong uh, Russian imperial overtones in all that story in particular argument that. Russians and Ukrainians are one people, which means uh, Ukrainians don't exist or don't have the right to exist. That comes straight from the from um, the ideology of the times of Alexander III, Nicholas II, the last two Russian Tsars, when the um, official line taken by the Russian imperial thinkers and politicians was that there existed one Russian nation of which Ukrainians were just a, a tribe. Um, together with with white Russians, um, so again we we are, we are talking about the the entire repertoire of uh, uh, Russian imperial um, uh, history, either under the Tsars or under under the communist rule, coming to the fore in this war. This leads me to the next question. You wrote uh, very much about this. Uh, question of Ukrainian identity in in numerous of your books in in Lost Kingdom in in Gates of Europe in uh, in Origins of Slavic Nations and uh, we have seen through these books actually how you you show how the Russian identity was developed how it was kind of encroaching on this medieval identity of Rus uh, how R- Russian uh, Moscovitz Ardom and then Russian Empire was pretending that actually the medieval history of Kiev is actually not a Uk- part of Ukrainian history but part of Russian history. And I always um, I was thinking is that why is Russia so obsessed in conquering Ukraine? It seems that it feels that without Ukraine it, it is not Russia even. So it is it can't be called Russia. Uh, without Kiev it can't be called uh, uh, the, the Russian identity doesn't make sense, and uh, I feel that existential fear uh, in in the Russian ideology of losing Ukraine, as if uh, by losing Kiev they're actually losing their head or their heart. So, uh, and if we think like that, it goes it, it it goes far beyond the typical colonial or imperial thinking, because I mean, empires conquer colonies, which are. Uh, far remote territories, but now in this Russian war against Ukraine, it, it seems to me that what is at stake for Russia, it's its own identity, its own existence. Would you agree with this? Well, this war on part of Russia is imperial at least on two levels. The first level is, is a classic imperial war where you go and you try either reclaim uh, the territory or crush the revolt against the empire in one of your uh, provinces, uh, in in, uh, one of the colonies on on the periphery. And um, that's that's clearly one of the stories, one of the underlying narratives of this war. 
because uh, for Russia, it's extremely important to keep control over the former imperial space or Soviet space to realize their vision of becoming one of the poles in the multipolar world. Without control over Ukraine, it's the second largest post-Soviet republic. It's difficult to get control over the entire post-Soviet space. So that is imperial or post-imperial classic story that you can see in case of other empires. But then there are also uh, um, some specific characteristics, also imperial. And that's about the story of the uh, Russian nation building and its relationship to the empire. And as I described before, uh, this war is um, underwritten in terms of uh, historical justification by the Russian imperial narratives from the 19th century of the existence of one big Russian nation. And uh, uh, fighting this war, uh, Russia tries not to reestablish its former control over the uh, imperial space, but also to maintain, to hold together its imperial vision of itself, its imperial vision of uh, uh, Russian identity. And um, the war that started under the banner of Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people produces completely opposite results. It, not only that it strengthens the Ukrainian national identity, exclusivist national identity, exclusivist toward Russia, but it also, uh, I am absolutely sure in that regard, will contribute in major way to the rethinking of what Russia is, what the Russian borders are, what Russian history should be, um, because the, the wars of that, of the, that pro- sort, of those proportions, with that level of um, uh, brutality, with that levels of victims, uh, they, they have impact not only on the country that has been attacked, but also on the country that is attacking. And if um, the uh, your mm, illusions that Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people and that Ukrainians are supposed to welcome Russians with flowers, Russian troops with flowers, if instead of that they, they, they welcome you with uh, guns and javelins and stugnas and, and other weapons, that sends a clearly strong message that you can't ignore that something is also wrong with your with your own perception of yourself. And here we also see that this fight of Ukraine against Russia is not only a, a fight between different ethnicities, I would say, but also di- between different value complexes or value systems. So I'm trying to describe the the Ukrainian political identity as profoundly republican or anti-imperial, anti-tyrannical. That's what we have in the 19th century that that you describe. Uh, Actually, even despite the fact that major Ukrainian intellectuals were thinking in the same Russian empire than the Russian intellectuals in the 19th century, if if you look deeper... At them, at people like Kostomarov or Drahomanov, uh, uh, or or even Pantelimon Kulish or some others, I think you you see profound differences. I think you see this mistrust towards the empire. I, I think you see this uh, this major emphasis on the idea of freedom, uh, anti-hierarchical thinking. Uh, 
bottom-up thinking uh, around the concepts of community like in Drahomanov uh, or, or some others. So do you think we can actually say that there is some profound elements of the Ukrainian political identity which are profoundly anti-imperial and uh, that Russia, by describing Ukrainians as far-right or as Nazis, just completely misunderstands, uh, perp- on purpose probably, uh, that what is the core of the Ukrainian political identity is not the idea of far-right, not even the idea of, uh, of kind of an exclusive nation, but rather an idea of a civil nation, citizens, uh, uh, integrating their forces around uh, around certain action and a certain idea of republic. The Ukrainian and Russian intellectuals, uh, to a degree, existed in the common space. Um, that common space was not just Russian and Ukrainian, it was European. Uh, the rise of the modern nations in the 19th century, this is certainly um, the phenomenon, the European phenomenon in general. And from that point of view, the um, Ukrainians were not just in dialogue with Russians, but in dialogue with Poles, in dialogue with, with representatives of other groups who were fighting against the empires. Yeah? The, the, the idea that your national project has the right to exist had to be proven in the first cultural and then political and eventually military confrontation with empires. When uh, the Russian intellectuals uh, who were thinking about Russian nation and were trying to formulate the Russian project uh, were dealing not with the idea of uh, revolt and democratic mobilization against empire, but were thinking about how to develop the national project in the way that it would not threaten the empire, how to stay nation while, while uh, continuing to be an empire. And uh, this uh, this are very very different tasks. And uh, despite the fact the origins of the thinking about the nations can be the same, and the conditions in which they are being developed uh, can be can be similar, the outcomes of, of those processes are very very different. And from that point of view, for Russians uh, historically, it's, it's it's difficult to imagine themselves not outside of the state, and given that the state for most of the time had been imperial in one form or another, difficult to imagine themselves outside of empire. Uh, I I have written a book on on the fall of the Soviet Union, and one of the um, suggestions that I made there, maybe not fully developed it, but the suggestion was that the once the elements of democracy were introduced into the Soviet space by uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the the uh, union started to fall apart because empire and democracy, democracy in which participate all all uh, citizens or all the population, all subjects of the empire. So democracy and empire are uh, incompatible. And if you want to, to if you imagine your, your nation as, as part and parcel of the imperial state, certainly democracy is not something that, that is part of your thinking. If you imagine your nation as something that rising in opposition to the, to the autocratic empire, democracy is almost by default is your weapon, is, 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 is your way of existence, is, is your way of mobilization. 
and um, that's that uh, that that sort of clash between democracy and autocracy that you also see this in this war and uh, it it has both have deep roots in in uh, Ukrainian and Russian society i mean democracy in Ukrainian and autocracy on the Russian side of the globe let me come back to this question of victory and defeat uh My hypothesis as a philosopher is that actually the victory uh, in the World War II uh, was very bad for the Soviet Union in, in the sense that it was it, it just conservated the, the most horrible parts of the Soviet Union. And even despite the uh, after the death of Stalin and there was some reforms in the party, but as we know, they didn't, for example, they, They just criticized Khrushchev. Just criticized the cult of cult of personality in Stalin, but it did not prevent mm-hmm. Soviet Union from invading Hungary and then from invading Czechoslovakia and then later in the Brezhnev era from invading Afghanistan. And uh, we know that all this process against the dissidents continued. So it was kind of a Stalinism soft version. And maybe the 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 war. Uh, On the other hand, if we take Europe, this horrible destruction, uh, this horrible overcoming of the Nazism and fascism actually played a good role because Europe started to developing and uh, it was very profound the, the, the first decades after the Second World War. So can we say that actually the, the victory uh, in the Second World War conservated Soviet Union and made it uh, much less uh, dynamic, although... Uh, the, the same authoritarian. And on the other hand, if we look back at the Russia's history, can we say that uh, Russia's defeats in the war, like in the 19th century in the Crimean War, in the 20th century in uh, Russian-Japanese War, in the First World War, in Afghanistan War, this war actually Russian defeats. Can we say that these defeats were actually positive for Uh, Russian development because it, it they opened the way at least for some time for some liberal democratic reforms. The victory in the so-called Great Patriotic War was openly celebrated, celebrated already under Stalin, as a proof that the model, the 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 the, the social model, the political model, the economic model of the Soviet Union created by the Bolshevik Revolution, that it proved to be not only, uh, not only um, uh, proved their right to, to exist and more than that, they emerged victorious over the capitalist, over the capitalist system as represented by Nazi Germany. So it was stated, stated more than once, stated publicly. So the the victory in the war war provided legitimization for the continuation of the regime there is no question about that and you are also right that that suggested that no no real reforms are needed why why fix something that doesn't that that is not broken that that keeps producing such wonderful results and on the top of that huge parts of the uh Eastern Europe that were occupied by the Soviet Union uh, turned turned uh, the Soviet Union from the um, pariah state that it existed during good part of the interwar period 
into the uh, one of the world's leading, leading powers really uh, set on the on the road on the path to uh, superpower status that the Soviet Union acquired in the 1960s 1970s the uh, victory of the communist movements in countries like like uh, China of course added to that uh, so um, certainly certainly the, the the message was that everything was right everything was correct and there was no need for any any major transformation. On the other hand, you see that with, with the death of Stalin in 1953, the, the system starts starts to decay one way or another. So it's uh, without without reform, it turns out to be not compatible economically, politically, at least by the by the 70s. And uh, when in the 80s uh, Gorbachev comes and, and starts introducing reforms. Uh, they they clearly fail. Um, what I can say about the the wars in which uh, Russia or the Soviet Union were less successful, um, they were uh, they were certainly always um, an invitation, sometimes demand for change and reform, because no victory defeat meant okay something has to be changed. That's the story of the great reforms in the Russian Empire after Russian loss in the Crimean War. Uh, that's, uh, to a degree, the, the story uh, of, of Gorbachev's reforms, uh, if one really linked them to, to the Afghan war, which, which certainly didn't go according to the plan. I, I, one of those who don't, uh, at least, uh, try not to overestimate the importance of Afghan war, uh, but uh, it certainly was what was a contributing factor. And then there are there are mm, Russo-Japanese War uh, and uh, the uh, World War One, which uh, Russia lost, and both produced not reform but produced revolution. Um, so the the wars that don't go well produce the reforms or revolutions. Uh, the the wars that go well uh, cement the state and uh, discourage reform and uh, catch up with the regime later so that's 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 at least what we see looking at uh, russia and the soviet union in the last 100 plus years that's what actually i think we need to say that uh, a victory for russia is bad is bad for russia is bad for russian citizens it has a always been bad for for russia because it's only increased and strengthened its authoritarianism and defeats are not only good for ukraine russia's defeat is not only good for ukraine for europe for the whole world but also good for russia for russian citizens at least they will not be killed so massively as they have been killed under suvorov under zhukov and under surovikin or, or gerasimov let me ask uh, coming back to this question between uh, of the World War II and the question of Nazism and Stalinism, I still find it hard, for example, in some countries like Germany to say that, look, Stalinism and Nazism are two types of absolute evil. And you cannot say that 
one is worse and the other is n- not that not that bad. I think uh, in countries like Germany, there is still this understanding that Nazism is an absolute evil, evil and compared to that, Stalinism is a lesser evil. And I, I, I personally find it very, very uh, dramatic and, and bad. But it's interesting that if you look if you look at at Ukrainian intellectual history uh, of the post World War, and I'm particularly thinking of a person, of an author who is called Ivan Bahriani, one of the first actually novelists who wrote a novel about Gulag, Sad Hetsemansky, much earlier than Solzhenitsyn, and who after the war gave a a, a d- definition to uh, to Stalinism as Russian red fascism. That's uh, his quote. And who actually uh, had a very also lucid vision of, for example, anti-Semitism, which started to develop after the Second World War in the Soviet Union under Stalin, uh, and uh, who was looking at this anti-Semitism, the the affair of of doctors and, uh, and the extermination of the Jewish intelligentsia after the Second World War as kind of a continuation of the Holocaust, but uh, uh, in, in another country, in the country which, which won against the Nazi Germany. So if you are asked as a historian, uh, can we call Stalinism a kind of a red, Russian-red fascism, and therefore can we see this continuation until Putin today? What would you say? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I subscribe to more, more maybe conventional <clears throat> ideology that I, I look at, at uh, uh, communism or Stalinism and fascism as um, uh, ideologies uh, that share some common features, um, the, the cult of, of the leader, the, the, the totalitarian model that, again, was used to describe them. Uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s, covers a lot of that, uh, but uh, that also have have uh, certain differences. One uh, in terms of the way how the economy is organized, uh, well, what is the role of the private property, uh, the, the way how you deal with the nationalities and and races and and other groups. So there are there are similarities and the differences, but they both belong to the to the um, this uh, totalitarian authoritarian ideologies of the interwar period. Um, what uh, what is happening today? I basically think that uh, this decision, the the recent decision by the Ukrainian parliament on on uh, Russiaism and definition what it is. Um, it's uh, on the one hand a search in in Ukrainian society for the right words, right terms, right meanings, how to deal with the aggressor, how to explain the aggression. There were, of course, terms like uh, Orki and Rusnya and Rashiste and so on and so forth. Um, on the other hand, it's it's uh, a term that uh, certainly closely related to the term fascism, and uh, allows for certain elements of of uh, fascism being in the new Russian ideology, but also defines it as as, as something as, as something separate, something different, and in that sense doesn't close close the the the, the the doors, the windows for uh, further analysis, because 
History doesn't repeat itself, as Mark Twain said, it rhymes. There is a lot of rhymes of fascism, of course, in, in the current ideology and, and behavior of Russia. Um, but there are also there are also new elements and new peculiarities, and uh, we we still have to have to. Um, we didn't even start in in many ways. Uh, start um, thinking about that, dealing with that phenomenon, understanding it. We are in the place where all thinking starts. We look for the parallels, and we found it with fascism. It is it is a pretty close one, but I think that most of the thinking work is still ahead of us. I w- I I will agree with you, and I think that there are two elements which, <clears throat> despite the, all the similarities, but which distinguish Russian current ideology from the fascism. <clears throat> the first is that fascism was actually a 20th century phenomenon. The the Russian imperialism is much older phenomenon. And fascism was a reaction to a deep modernization which took place in Europe, and particularly in Germany. Uh, whereas Russia didn't didn't find this modernization if we look at the uh, at the current Russian state. So the the Nazism and the fascism was were the ideas of these conservative revolutions. I mean, you, you you need to jump into the future. You need to cut the ties with with the present. While there is no such ideology in Putinism, in Putinism there is much more evolutionist and much more inertial ideology. And there is second element is that fascism and Nazism were the ideologies for the young. They were created by relatively young people, and they were mobilizing relatively young force. Whereas, um, whereas Putinism is rather, um, you know, ideology of the old. Therefore, I, I I asked you about Brezhnevism because I see these parallels with this old spirit, biologically old, uh, old Brezhnevism. So, if this is true, if my hypothesis is true, do you think? And this is my last question. Do you consider this imperial war as rather a, an attempt of the empire which which feels its its weakness to prove to itself that it is still strong by but by this doing uh, just proving that it is weak? Um, I, I think it's it's a classic classic uh, revanchism. And uh, in that sense, the, the, the parallels with the uh, interwar period are really particularly strong. You see, uh, um, and the parallels are the strongest between Russia and Germany. You see a country losing a major war, World War One or uh, Cold War, uh, uh, in one case World War One, in another case Cold War, uh, losing territories finding uh, significant portions of the population whom they consider to be their own, either German-speaking or Russian-speaking, outside of their borders. Uh, and uh, uh, there is there is a sense of uh, humiliation, unfulfilled promise of the empire, and uh, there is, the, the, there is in, in, in public in general, um, um, clearly, clearly, crisis associated not only with that, but also with the major economic downturn. And in Russian case, this is, of course, 1990s. In German in German case, this is the period immediately after the war and, uh, and then following, following the Great Depression. 
So I see it there uh, as a, an attempt not so much to maintain the empire which was lost, but to regain the empire and the status and employing, employing a particular uh, tropes and models of mobilization which are focused on the on the uh, uh, really uh, really strong strong authoritarian power control over the the totalitarian type of control over the society and media um, so again I, I see very very close parallels uh, but again as an intellectual I don't want to close um, doors for 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 um, any any further analysis and, and understanding of this phenomenon is by, by stopping at the historical parallels. Yes, yes, of course, there is, there is a lot of, of, uh, of thinking to be done and therefore our podcast is called Thinking in Dark Times and I, I actually believe that these moments of these, of these catastrophes and tragedies and human, human tragedies and all this darkness is also an invitation for us to think. Serhii Plehi, thank you so much for joining this conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org and our series Thinking in Dark Times. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.